The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you have gathered us here this morning in this place to consider in this holiday what you have done to save the world, to save a people from every tongue and tribe and nation on earth. You don't exclude certain ones, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. calling out a people from all of the peoples, all of the world. You're doing it. You have done it. And we consider some piece of that this morning. In in a real way, it is always the subject. Every week we consider it, but we have particular opportunity now as we celebrate Christmas to think about what it is that you did, what it is that you gave so as to save us. So give us minds and hearts to consider the same old story in new ways, perhaps. From a passage that we are familiar with, but perhaps are not keenly aware of all the details within. Help us to consider it, and really help us to consider you. And as we listen and think, would you cause in us Renewed joy, renewed hope. Maybe some of us for the first time, genuine saving faith. And for many of us, renewed faith, stirred up faith. Faith that fastens onto you a God who is good, who is generous, who gives, who saves, and who makes for peace. So Lord, open to us the scriptures this morning and cause us to see you, to rest in you, to rejoice in you, to know your peace, to know membership, fellowship within your kingdom, all for our good and for your great honor. That's what you've aimed at, our good and your honor. And so will you Will you cause that to be a little, more, a little more real, a little more tangible for us this morning? Would you bring good to us this morning? Would you honor your name? Spirit of God, that's my, my prayer, that you would move through this room and that you would build up your people. You would call in those who are still outside, and you would do so to the honor of the name. So help us this morning, we pray. Make the scriptures clear. Help my words to be clear. Carry us along here this morning. Build your people. In the name of Jesus, King over this kingdom. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we gather today to celebrate Christmas, we will turn our attention to a well-known passage, the book of Isaiah. Part of this passage is quoted in the New Testament. Part of it, famously, is sung in Handel's Messiah. Most of it connects to what we've seen in recent weeks, somehow or another, in our study of the Gospel of Luke that we just finished. And all of it, I think, will help us to consider Christmas and what it means, in a, maybe in a different light. But before we read it, some context. Prophet Isaiah lived and ministered in Jerusalem in about the 8th century B.C., which is, that is approximately 750 years before the birth of Jesus. The Assyrian Empire was dominant at that time. In fact, 
if you're looking at your Bible, you might have a, a heading over chapter 8 that alludes to a coming Assyrian invasion of Judah, which would be the southern part of the land of Israel, the, the southern part of, of Israel where the city Jerusalem was located. Judah and Jerusalem for some time had faced a lot of trouble from foreign powers, and for a variety of reasons, in particular, because of Judah's faithlessness with regards to the Lord, the consequences of breaking the covenant that they had with God were, were now coming to pass, and an invasion, Assyria was, was coming, it was about to sweep in, brought in by the Lord as a consequence to devastate the whole land like had never happened before. The chapters leading up to our text all tell of this coming trouble and the anguish that would result from it. But anguish is not God's final word. And our passage talks about something related to hope, to relief of anguish. So the context is a sobering one, but it's pushing on towards hope, towards deliverance. Let me read verses 1 to 7 from Isaiah chapter 9, and then I'm going to draw out from that passage two observations. They're going to help us, I think, to see the goodness of God and to understand something of what he's given us at Christmas. So let me read, this is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9. Two observations. Here's the first. God promised to provide relief from the darkness of the world. God's promised to provide relief from the darkness of the world. Last verse of chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2 that I read are dominated by the theme of darkness being relieved by light which of course is a metaphorical way of describing some sort of glorious deliverance from some sort of great trouble. And in the context, the trouble is quite clear. The previous chapter concludes with the condition of the people who are turning from God, as I mentioned, and therefore God is bringing upon them, he is introducing to them this trouble of this great coming Assyrian invasion. And so if we were to look at the last verse of chapter 8, we'd see their words like, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. And to be even more specific, verse 1 mentions these areas of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. These are regions in, in the northern part of the, of the land. Because they, 
they would first and most deeply experience the coming Assyrians because they came from the north. So they'd be impacted by them, they would suffer under them, and they would feel, in the words of verse 4, the yoke of burden, the, the staff, the rod of oppression. This, when it happened, this would be conquering. Life under conquest. It would be life in an occupied territory as they, they sweep over and bring all kinds of suffering and sorrow materially and emotionally, even spiritually. You'd see the wealth the, the resources, the food and the goods all stripped away and carried off. So you have physical depredation. The men of fighting age, those that aren't dead, carried off as captives, have fled. And the women who are left are in trouble. Abused and exploited. There's a sense of... of emotional loss also in all that because not, not, not only is it physical loss, but you, if you're living in that, you clearly experience hopelessness and fear and vulnerability. And then they are aware, because he told them, they are aware this has come as a consequence of our walking away from God. And so there is a spiritual loss too. There's a distance from God and an unawareness of, of what do we do now? How, where is he what do we do? The one who was our hope is silent. Not, not related to and not enjoyed and not even understood in some ways. In every way imaginable, this is the opposite of the life of shalom. Shalom is, maybe it's a word you're familiar with, it's an important word in, in the, the scriptures. It's Essentially, we can translate it peace, but it's not just peace as in the absence of fighting. Other words you could use, shalom is the life of wholeness, the life of relational and, and interpersonal integrity. So, so with oneself at rest, with one's neighbors at rest, and with God at rest. And therefore, knowing a life of, of, of communion and a life of abundance, peace, shalom. And in every way possible, what they are experiencing is not that. Twice the word is used and it fits well. It, it is anguish. Darkness. Anguish cast in hopelessness, darkness, a life of trouble and unrest and dis-ease. Now, all that makes perfect sense in that context. If they're looking at a superpower that's going to come in, and the images used in Isaiah, like water rising up to the chin, and you feel like you're going to drown, like a razor that shaves away all the hair, just cuts you. That all makes perfect sense in the context of an, of an Assyrian invasion and devastation. But, lest we think, man, that's hard for them. Glad to not be there. Lest we think this is just about them. It, it, it certainly arises from and sits in that context. But, lest we think this is trapped in the 8th century B.C., a couple things we need to consider. First, verse 1, in the former time, in the latter time, that's language that alerts us to something. He's talking about eras, great Great time scopes in the former times, in the latter times. And, and then we notice that, and the solution to this problem is not the defeat of the Assyrians, but something that is the end of all war, 
verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior and every garment, every uniform rolled in blood, it's all burned up in the fire. It's, it's not just the, the defeat of the Assyrians, it's the end of war. And it happens when there's a child born, which is surely about Jesus, 750 years later. It, this, this situation, this problem arises in the context of this particular invasion, this particular place. But if you look a little more closely at the second time through, you realize this actually transcends 8th century B.C. Israel. It's not just about a particular people in a particular place with a particular problem. Or to put it another way, the core problem addressed here, raised up and addressed in our passage with a, with a solution, is not just Assyrian armies, but what comes with these Assyrian armies? The life of darkness, darkness in the world. That transcends the 8th century, and it comes to us. Nobody today is going to suffer at the hands of the Assyrians anymore. They're gone. <laughs> but the life of darkness is still with us in this world. It is part of the human condition. In fact, it is the human condition. This speaks to all of us, we who walk in darkness. All of us, we who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Because we live in a world that is fallen. Darkness at its core, darkness at its core is evil. And the suffering and hardship that falls out follows on from that. And that's what this world, in fact, is. It is fallen. Now, I, I realize I'm preaching a Christmas sermon about evil. Okay. We, we have to be honest. First, about the problem. There is a glorious answer here, but first, the problem is real. We live in a world that is fallen, that is bound over, that is trapped under, stuck in, whatever language fits there, that has fallen in sin and is under dominion. Under dominion to, a, to an attitude and even dominion to a spirit a personal spirit who is bent against God and seeks to destroy image bearers, people. We have an enemy. We live in a world that has fallen and is, and is under his yoke. And we ourselves, each individually, are fallen. We are sinners. We have something in us that is insane, that is bent against God and is bent against other people. And even, if you think about this, it's bent against yourself. We ourselves, we, at the same time while we are bent towards ourselves, we are against ourselves. We find it extremely difficult. Ask yourself, do you not? find it extremely difficult to stop doing to stop doing things that you wish you could stop doing and you find it extremely difficult to consistently do things you wish you could consistently do but you struggle against that and and you fail it again and again and again there's something something wrong inside We are broken. The world is broken and we are broken. There is a darkness out there and there is a darkness that lives inside within here. And so we know the yoke of burden, maybe literally, maybe in a literal oppressive sense. And we shouldn't discount that. It, it, this is an easy thing. This is an easy thing for us, frankly, to be honest. Many of us here in this room live on 
the nice end of a spectrum. And words like oppression don't usually match us literally. But we could ask other people groups, even in this valley, and we could ask other people groups around the world, do you know what oppression means? And they would say, are you out of your mind? Of course. Oppression is real in the world. It is tangible. It is physical in the world. But it is also metaphorically true. As part of this fallen world, we, we suffer under a, a bondage. We suffer under a yoke. Metaphorically oppressed. Metaphorically, emotionally in a, in a figurative sense, burdened, living a life of bondage that we can't escape, and that just crushes you. So sometimes it looks like I am the healthiest, wealthiest, wisest person that I know, and I hate my life. Sometimes, sometimes that's our experience. That is, a, that is a common analysis of America. We are the wealthiest nation on earth and one of the least happiest There's a bondage there. Do you see it in the world? Do you see it in the newspaper? But do you see it in your own life? We are finite and fallen, and we live in a world that is dark. And at the heart of all that darkness just like it was in, in its context here in Isaiah 9, at the heart of that darkness, the core issue is separation from God. The world does not know Him by nature. Individual people Even, and I realize I'm speaking to a group of people, and the great majority of us, I don't know everybody here, but the great majority of us here, we are Christians. I understand that, but ask yourself, even as a Christian, this is still a mark of us, and I'm going to come back to this later. This is still a mark of us. We know him, but we struggle to know him. Paul will use language like, the scriptures will use language like, seeing through a glass dimly. We, we can see, but we, we struggle to see. There's still a darkness, even as a Christian, that we face. At the core of our, our problem, our human condition, is a separation from God that even for us, though that separation has been technically eliminated and we are joined to Him, we are in union with Him, we still struggle to know Him and to see Him regularly and to walk with Him. Be honest about this and, and to look and, and not, I hope that we don't, we don't look at this morosely or, or look at this with, with a defeatist attitude, but look at this with an honest attitude and say, something is wrong. Something is wrong here. And then to realize this is not, thank God, not a call, a command, an exhortation to us to fix it. Do you see why that's good news? Because if the message was, there's darkness, so get about lighting it up. That would be overwhelming. Fix the problems of the world? I can't fix my own heart. <laughs> the world? Oh my goodness. Mistakenly, though, sometimes we, we kind of view the message of the Bible as that. Here's what's wrong. Here's how you fix it. Get to it. Thank God that is not the point. 
This is not here an exhortation to see what's wrong with the world and with our lives and get about fixing it. It is a promise that God is going to do that. That's good news. It is an alert. There is, there is darkness that, that hangs over the world like a shroud. And you walk in it and you sit in it. And God promises to relieve it by shining into it a great light. In fact, he is zealous to accomplish that. The very last sentence of the very last verse, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is all that we haven't talked about yet. God says, I will overcome this. He promises himself in his own zeal to shine a great light into the darkness and to relieve it, to relieve people. So if, if the first half of this is, is a sobering awareness of darkness, we must not hear it as a, as a hammer getting dropped on us to condemn, but to make us aware, you have a problem. We have a problem. And then to alert us to the goodness of God, that God himself says, not get to fixing it, but God himself says, and I will address it. I will. I myself will. This is a good God. This is, this is an alert to a problem, and it is an alert to a good and generous and gracious and merciful God. He will shine in a great light. He will cause a light to dawn on a people who dwell in darkness. He will. He himself. And until you see the darkness, until you see the darkness and feel the weight of it, if, if you see yourself as walking on the sunny side of the street and you see yourself as living in the noonday, then an offer of light is nice but not particularly relevant. We dwell in darkness. And we cannot do anything about it. And bless God, he has promised to. He wants to chase away gloom and to relieve anguish and to make glory shine. How? By sending a child. Which brings us to the second point. Darkness is relieved only in the coming kingdom of the great King Jesus. Darkness is relieved only in the kingdom of the great King Jesus. So verse 1 talks about light will shine into the darkness and then people will rejoice. And verse 4, 4, God will break the yoke of the oppressor. 4, verse 5, God will burn up the implements of war. 4, verse 6, to us a child is born. There's the chain that identifies the light shining into the darkness is the child born. The son given. The great Messiah King, Jesus. Middle verse 6, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The right to rule will come to him, will be laid on his shoulder. And literally, if you're looking at your Bible, you may see a footnote there that, that notes that literally the language in the verse is emphasizing already accomplished rather than will be accomplished. Of course, from the standpoint of Isaiah, this is all in the future. So for our English versions to write this with the future tense, in some senses, clarifies it for us, so it's, it's appropriate. But literally, this is an already done thing. The child is born 
already ruler, already with the right to rule. He doesn't gain that right at some future point. Comes with authority. The government is on his shoulder already. A baby born whose name is, and there are four couplets there. Basically, they are all adjectives modifying nouns. He's called these things because this is what he is. A wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. An everlasting father. A peace-bringing prince. And if we didn't already know that this was about Jesus, if we were to approach this, you know, kind of reading the, the Bible forward, we would be focused on the adjectives. Which is why I read it that way, wonderful counselor. Because we'd note that the nouns are all ways that various peoples of, of the, the ancient world would describe at times their rulers or their their kings, the people in charge, those who, who ran their governments. Counselor and father and prince and even God, the ancients would call their rulers with those names. And so we would we would say, oh, clearly this is talking about a coming ruler. What kind of ruler? What kind of counselor are we looking for as God's identified light, as God's identified deliverer? And then we'd notice the evidence of Jesus' wonderful instruction and of his might and of his eternality. And then we'd look again at the nouns and say, hmm, that kind of stretches the bounds a little bit. Because this is an, an, an Israelite prophet. The Egyptians called their kings gods. But an Israelite prophet couldn't do that. So if we were to read this, kind of trying to investigate who is the prophet talking about, we'd first notice the adjectives and say someone wonderful, someone mighty, someone everlasting, someone who brings peace. And then we'd say, but all the nouns push him towards God. Because in the Israelite context, Father is God. God is God, never the king. So we'd, we'd come at this, if we were looking at it, investigating who is this about, we'd see this is about Jesus, and this is a divine Jesus. But we're not going to look at it that way this morning. We're so familiar with this passage, and we, we sing it at Christmas. We, we know it's about Jesus. So I'm not looking at this to try to figure out who, but to figure out a little bit of why. I'm assuming the connection to Jesus and instead asking how or why is, is he the answer to the darkness? What do we see here about why he's the answer to the darkness? Why this child born brings light into this world? It's because of what his kingdom is like, which is because of what he is like. So we look at this and we say, behold this king. He is a wonder-filled counselor. Consider him. As an instructor and a teacher and a guide, if, and if you were to look at him through the pages of Luke like we just did, you could pick any of the gospel, but you could think of Luke, what would you see there? You would see there a wonder. Understanding and wisdom and answers and insights. When he's 12 years old, he's sitting in the temple dialoguing with the supreme teachers of the land and everybody is amazed at the 12-year-old's understanding and at his questions. Now he's, he's learning and he's growing. He's a boy. 
When we preach that passage, you recall, I mentioned, any teacher can tell who the bright kid is by the questions she asks. Where his mind goes next and next and next and next and next. Ooh, they were amazed. And then he begins to teach, to speak truth. And he knows everything about any and every subject in any and every field, spiritual and material, seen and unseen. He unpacks the human heart and examines motives and makes them clear to people and to crowds. He is the trustworthy guide that we need and lack. His word is truth. It is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path that helps us walk in darkness and it makes the the simple wise. (laughs) This is one People heard him teach and marveled at what he said and how he said it. He claimed authority to, com- to hold in his own hand and clarify with his own word what the law of God said and meant. And he spoke with authority and people marveled. He had limitless power. He is mighty. If there's anything that, it, that any casual reader of the gospel knows, it's that Jesus was a miracle worker of astonishing scale. On, on a scale that, that shocked and of a type that shocked. He's not walking around healing people of back pain. And he's not healing... In, A certain person here or there, maybe, sort of, we didn't really see it, and it's a questionable circumstances. He cast out demons, legions of demons, and individual demons, repeatedly and in public. He healed massive crowds. Of all sorts of ailments, he healed leprosy, blindness, deafness, lameness, severed ears, and malformed hands. He raised dead people back to life. He stopped storms at once. He walked on water. He fed thousands of people twice with a single person's lunch, miraculously multiplied. What he says is wonderful. How he dissects the human heart is astonishing. And how he commands the physical creation with the word of power is shocking. He is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, and eternal in his existence. He existed in eternity past. He is God the Son, the second person of the one triune God, without any beginning ever, eternally existing. He came into time and space in a body, born, certainly. That's what we celebrate this this season. But his body was not conceived in the normal human way, and it could not be held by the grave. But he raised up, and he has ascended bodily into heaven, where he reigns forever eternally existing. He is wonderful in His counsel. He is full of might. He lasts forever. And He is the Prince of Peace. This is the final and really the summary title. Because peace is the goal of all this. If you're you're tracking through the point of the passage... We're looking for the solution to darkness, and the opposite of that is light or peace. Those who walk in darkness don't need, say abstractly, power. They don't need wisdom. 
just abstractly. They need that for the sake of bringing peace. Overcoming the yoke of oppression, overcoming the darkness to bring in that shalom. Life. The kind of life we all were made for and long for and cannot find in this world. And he's the prince, the ruler who brings it. He's the kind of ruler who can bring it. Because he knows what's true and he sees into all deceptions and exposes them and eradicates them and with power chases out and destroys evil and, and lives forever, everlastingly to do that. Only someone like that can actually bring peace, can relieve from the troubles of this world, can overcome darkness by, verse 7, setting up a government, a kingdom like that that lasts forever. <coughs> he establishes and upholds an ever-increasing reign Increasing government and increasing peace of which there will be no end. His is an everlasting kingdom that is filled with this wonderful guidance, with this powerful administration, and is just and righteous. It is established and upheld with justice and with righteousness. That's the throne that he sits on. Justice and righteousness. And he knows what justice and righteousness is. And he is powerful to execute it. Forever. Only someone like that who lives forever can bring about this kind of a kingdom that has no end but grows and spreads until it all covers the whole of the earth and there is no darkness, no, none whatsoever, anywhere, but all is light. A marvelous shining light. That's the picture of the king. The Christ who has come, who has taken up a throne and is extending wisely, powerfully, irresistibly forever a kingdom of righteousness and justice into every corner of the earth, chasing away all darkness, all evil, all discord, all disharmony everywhere. That is a glorious thing. A glorious kingdom. A sweet and hope-filled life spreading everywhere, growing increasingly, bringing joy and gladness for whom? It's important that we ask that question too. Because it would be easy to assume, having stopped earlier to, to think about the darkness and having concluded that the whole world is dark and we all live in that darkness, we all dwell in the land of deep darkness, it would be easy to conclude that then along comes Jesus, along comes the light. And we all experience the light as it chases away the darkness. All right? Easy to assume that. It's also easy to assume that here at Christmas because we misunderstand many of the songs we sing. Joy to the world. Peace on 
earth, goodwill towards men. That's everybody, right? That's all the world. That's everybody. We all receive joy. We all receive peace. We all receive goodness. We all receive the blessing of Jesus because we're here. And then he comes. Right? Hold on. That's not quite the case. It's important that we not miss this. Verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts is zealous to bring in this kingdom and cause this kingdom to cover all of the creation. This kingdom established and upheld in justice and in righteousness. In justice and in righteousness. King Jesus sits upon reigns from, enacts, and carries out justice and righteousness. And none of us are righteous, no, not one. The Bible is extremely clear about that. And in fact, in the very context, that's what brought the problem. Is the people were against God, unrighteous and unjust, turning away from Him. That's what brought the problem. We, we want to, we, we sense a, a need for this kind of, of good deliverance. But then if you, if you work one more time around the circle, it seems something sweet has been offered here, but then actually that was just more trouble brought here because it's a throne of justice and righteousness, and this is a king who knows everything and is mighty and cannot be triumphed over and will never pass on. And there is no one righteous, no, not one. And this, this king, in fact, himself said, let me summarize the law of God. Love him with everything that you are. And I don't do that. Love him with all of your all and love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't do that. Who can stand in front of this throne of righteousness? this throne of justice. If what Christmas is about is the bringing of this king and a bringing of, of righteousness and a bringing of justice and a sorting out of what's wrong in the world and eliminating of the darkness, if that's what Christmas is about purely and only like that, then I have a gigantic problem. Because the darkness is not out there. The darkness is in here. And I find that the king who comes, and I, I'd wished he was my savior, is actually my judge. There has to be something more here. Is there something more here? Is, is there some other additional element, some piece of hope that is going to present this, that's going to turn this and make it a solution to the darkness and not just a sealing up of me in greater darkness? And there is, though it is only hinted at here, it is indeed hinted at here. This great king, if all he was about was verse 7 government, verse 7 
kingdom reign from a throne of righteousness and justice. Then there's no need for him to be introduced to us as a baby. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God can do a perfectly fine job as God of pressing righteousness and justice into the world and wiping out evil. He can do that just fine as he is. But he did something else. He came into human history as a little baby. Unto us a child is born, himself vulnerable, given in the darkness of that silent night. Why? Here is the mighty come so very meekly. Here's the divine born as a human. Why? Why the incarnation? Because he wasn't just about rain, but also about redemption. And the vulnerable, humble body hints at what that redemption would be like. It isn't all spelled out here in this chapter. But there's something hinted at here. The Almighty, the King, will become a person. Ultimately, we have to read on with the rest of the story to figure out why is that? Why is that? Why would he do that? Because he wants to redeem people. And ultimately, he became a man so that he could stand before the righteous and just judge on our behalf and take on himself the penalty that would be ours, to take on himself the darkness without light, to take on himself the, the rod of affliction on his shoulder. What the incarnation is about is God not just giving to us a ruler, but giving to us a redeemer, one who would in our place step up before the law of God and perfectly keep it where we cannot. One who himself knew no darkness at all. And then graciously, mercifully, will offer to us, will offer to credit to our account that righteousness and justice that is not ours, it is his, and take on himself our unrighteousness, our injustice, and carry it forward before the throne of judgment, carry it forward onto the cross, and die as payment in our place. What Christmas is about is... is is the incarnation for the sake of, of trading places with us. All dreamed up by God. He makes us aware of the problem of darkness and says, I will shine a light into that, and it's going to be a light like you can't even imagine. It's not even just going to be a light to correct it. It's going to be a light to correct you. And then to bring you into the correction of darkness, to bring you into light. God's intention is to give us a son, to give us a sacrifice, to give us a savior, that there would be no more gloom on us, no more anguish on us, because there's no more guilt on us. <coughs> this is a sweet offer to provide for us a substitute sacrifice and to provide for us a substitute righteousness so that we can enter into the kingdom and stand there legitimately. You, 
You have to come into the kingdom righteous and just. That's what's written on the base of the throne. That's all that's allowed in there is righteous and just. And you can come in there clothed in righteous justice given to you by the righteous and just one. The man, Jesus. God the Son. You can stand there then before this holy, holy, holy God and know that He looks on you, not, not sideways out of His eye wondering how in the world you snuck in here. But straight on, clearly, welcoming you in because He looks at you from the throne. God the Father, Son, and Spirit looks at you from heaven and sees you, little you, little person that you are, and sees you, if you're clothed in Christ, sees you as pure and spotless, right and just. God didn't just give us a ruler. He gave us Jesus as our righteousness and Jesus as our justice that we can then carry to the Father and say, look, I belong. You belong there because of him. And that was all dreamed up by God, not you. But you belong in heaven. Do you realize? Keep pushing this into the, the absurd. It's not literally absurd, but it's I think I find it to be amazing. The Christian, as you have trusted Christ, God cannot keep you out of heaven. It would be sin for God to hold you out of heaven. You who are in Christ. You see that? You belong there. What God gave you was not just wise counsel and a powerful ruler who lasts forever and promises to bring peace, but God gave you a, a just, deserved, appropriate, and right seat at the table. And when you walk in, you belong, and he cannot send you away. Now, of course, he doesn't want to. This is the absurd part, is that I'm presenting it as if God would want to. He doesn't want to. But that, that's, your, that's your security. That's your assurance. That's how in you are. You can lay at the justice of God a demand. I belong. The absurdity is we don't, we don't talk to God like that. He doesn't, he doesn't demand us to talk to him like that. But, but this, is, this is Jesus, righteous and just, come as a person so as to provide for you his righteousness and justice, so as to give you a sure ticket in. To grasp that, to grasp that should plant you extremely firmly in verse 3. Look at the, the, the repeated theme of verse 3. Increased joy, rejoicing, as with joy at the harvest, glad when they divide the spoil. It should plant you in the middle of joy and gladness. God has shown a light into the world 
not just to stand against darkness, but to save you from darkness, to change you, and to grant you a sure place in a kingdom of light, in a kingdom of righteousness and justice, in a kingdom that is spreading and ever increasing, and is for your joy and your gladness, your rejoicing and your gladness, your joy. This is good news. But I want to take one more circle around this and say, do you remember last week? I'm going to do this quickly. Last week, I said, in preaching about the Holy Spirit, I raised this question, how come, if this is the life given to us, this is last week, how come we don't often walk in that, we, we Christians? We, we often know less than that. And what that sermon circled around and what I want to import here this morning to this, this spot right here is the filling of the Holy Spirit. I just said it should plant you in verse 3, joy and gladness and rejoicing and for a number of us, it, it doesn't consistently plant us there. Why not? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yield to Him. That's the word that works for me. I mentioned this last week. Yield to Him. For your own good, I, I plead with you, Turn your face towards God and say, I see, I understand what it is you've done. I have heard the gospel a bunch of times. Maybe it's new for you this morning, but for many of us, this is all very familiar to us. I've heard this a bunch of times, Father. And I know I have a place in heaven with you. I know that what you've given me at Christmas is a Savior. I understand all that. I've been, I've been through a lot of Christmases. But I want to walk in a joy and a gladness that isn't based on the circumstances of the season. I want to walk in and I want to know and I want to abide in not the darkness of the world, but the joy of the Lord. Help. It's not, it's not a... I use the word yield because it works for me, but as I emphasized last week, that's not a passive do nothing. That's, that's a, an active turning over of your heart and a reaching out to God and an asking him. And then it's a taking of these scriptures and saying, Lord, would you press into them the truth of them? Fill my mind with them and make them real to me. So what I would leave you with here this morning, church, is know the joy of Christmas. That is... Know the joy of a secure and certain standing in a kingdom of peace. To know the joy of that then, be filled with the Spirit. May God give you that gift. Again, newly, may He give you that gift this Christmas a soaking in and an appreciation of the beauty of a Savior who grants you a certain seat in the kingdom of peace. May He cause your joy to increase, cause you to rejoice with a joy as at harvest time. May He make you glad for all the goodness that He has done for you. May he give you eyes to see the light. May he bless you here and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May he do that for you this Christmas. Know the Lord. Know the Lord by the power of his Spirit. Rest in him and rejoice. Let me pray.
Lord, we need you. We need you always. We need you every day. We need you when we are unaware that we need you. But now we ask you here today, this morning, now, in front of this passage, you make us to see, to rest in, and to rejoice over the gift of a king who is also a humble savior. Cause us to rejoice in him. Will you give us the ability to live seeing all of life in light of him? Trusting in his reign over us, his control of every circumstance, his certain love. We meet your people here this morning and build us up and lead us in joy. I'm thankful for what you've provided for us. Help us to, to understand it and to appreciate it and to, to be happy and thankful. Build your people and honor your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.